You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. I'm Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, along with Nick Lee. The Seahawks are off today, but we don't have off days here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. And we've got a huge divisional matchup with the Green Bay Packers coming up quickly. So we got a ton to discuss in today's show. Let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. The Seahawks picked up their first playoff win in three years on Sunday, and not surprisingly, Nick, the defense played much better with a certain veteran out there in center field. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows how good Quandre Diggs has been since he's come to Seattle, and I still laugh at the fifth-round pick trade for the from the Lions. He's had such a positive impact on everybody else, and his communication is savvy, his instincts, his range, and really the numbers speak for themselves as far as just some of the metrics in, on defense. And Pete Carroll was referencing at practice that uh, Diggs will be calling out routes and, and play calls before they before the snap, which which helps a unit out tremendously. And I was just thinking as well, Corbin, that with him being an NFC North veteran, um, he's played four and a half seasons with the Lions. He knows Lambeau Field. He knows the Packers. He's actually three and one at Lambeau Field with 10 tackles and an interception in those four games. So he knows the lay of the land very well, and that can't be a bad thing. That can only help the Seahawks. Yeah, Pete Carroll was talking about that. He certainly thinks that'll be an advantage. I actually had a question in the mailbag yesterday here in our show, and I wonder how much impact that that's going to have just from the fact the Packers do have a new offense, and he didn't get to play, obviously, the second matchup for the Lions against the Packers this year because he was with the Seahawks at that point. But he's certainly familiar with Green Bay. He knows the stadium well. You mentioned he's had success there. He knows how to win at that stadium. That can't be a bad thing going against Aaron Rodgers and company. There's not a player who may have benefited more from the return of Quandre Diggs coming back from that high ankle sprain than Bradley McDougald, his safety counterpart, 11 tackles, two tackles for loss, a sack against the Eagles, just flying all over the field, and he limited Zach Ertz to one catch for eight yards while in coverage. The one big play that Ertz had, Carroll said that was not McDougald's fault. He was dropped back in his zone, and that was not his area. So when he was in man coverage against Ertz, he shut him down, and it just seems like he has played in the six games that he has been with Quandre Diggs. He's been more comfortable He's been more confident, and he's just been faster on the field. And we know how this works, Nick. If you're playing loose and you're playing confident, you're going to run faster. If you're weighing things, things are weighing down your mind, and you're worried about placement and trying to get other people lined up, it affects your ability to do your own job. It does, and I'm, I'm not going to – I don't mean any disrespect when I say this to Tedrick Thompson or Marquis Blair, but well, I mean, when you're babysitting out there in, in a way, <laughs> um, which is what Bradley McDougal did for part of the season as the, as the veteran season safety, I mean, that, that affects you. And we saw in, in the peak of the Legion, the Bo- Legion of Boom era when Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas are back there, they fed off each other. They, they fit the Earl Thomas matched you know, Chancellor's big hit with a big coverage – um, interception or, or player, they, they just seem to feed off each other so well and one was missing, there was a clear uh, void. And I'm not saying that these two are Chancellor and Thomas, no way, but certainly they benefit from each other. There's a, there's a symbiotic relationship there where it, two veterans, they have to feel comfortable or McDougal not in the back of his mind is not going, shoot, does this guy know his coverage? Is he going to blow this? Because he knows Quandre Diggs is a seasoned veteran. And, and I know you're running some numbers, Corbin, but really the, the numbers speak for themselves. I mentioned um, before the playoff game against the Eagles, that the Seahawks averaged a turnover or a takeaway less per game 
without Diggs in the lineup. So that in of itself should speak volumes to the value that Diggs brings, and also McDougal, because I think he played maybe his best game as a Seahawk um, on on Sunday night against the Eagles. I think maybe not statistically wise. I mean, he, he maybe statistically wise. I guess I haven't looked at that. But I would make an argument stat wise and film wise that was the best game he's played. Overall. It is, yeah. He, I mean, he just fed off of Diggs. They fed off each other, and that can only be a good thing heading into Green Bay where they're going to need all hands on deck. So, yeah, having them two in the back really gives me a lot of comfort that Aaron Rodgers won't go over deep very much. I made some modifications to these numbers when I was assembling the data, but you were mentioning the turnovers. I just wanted to look at the impact from a defensive scoring perspective that Diggs has had when he's been in the lineup and they've given up a lot of points off of offensive turnovers and special teams plays this year. So I took those points out because that's not the defense's fault. I also eliminated scores that happened in the fourth quarter by the Panthers in Week 15 because Diggs was not in the field. He was injured in the third quarter. So two touchdowns were scored without him on the field. Wagner was off the field for those two drives as well. So I eliminated, eliminated those two scores before I put all this data together. But this is what I ended up figuring out. In 11 games without the Diggs-McDougald duo, they've had a bunch of different guys rotating in there with McDougald at safety. The Seahawks gave up 23.8 points per game defensively. In the six starts with with Diggs and McDougald together, that number drops to 17.2 points per game. And again, that's without those two touchdowns the Panthers scored in the fourth quarter. Diggs wasn't on the field, so I didn't include them in there. That is nearly a touchdown per game difference. I mean, some might be saying, well, that's not that big of a deal. Almost seven points, that's a huge drop-off compared to what they were playing like without digs. And so everything else put aside, to me, that's that's the most damning statistic that indicates how much of an impact digs has really had. Well, that's a huge difference. I mean, with how, we all know how the Seahawks play games. They're addicted to the drama, and they're incapable of winning games by more than eight points. That that could be the difference between winning and losing. I guarantee you, I, this is a guarantee, this is a Nick Lee lock of the week or whatever it is, the, if the Seahawks win on Sunday in Green Bay, it will be by less than eight points. So this is a huge statistic because, I mean, they're, I forget what it is, 9-2 and two or 9-10-1 and ten and one or whatever it is in one-score games this year. When you talk about a one score difference between having Diggs and McDougal back there or not. That's between winning and losing with the Seahawks team. Yeah, I don't think we can underestimate how much better this defense is with Diggs back there. And I don't think at this point we can expect anything but a one score game between these two teams. I mean, maybe the Packers will come out and really take it to the Seahawks. I don't envision that happening. We're going to talk about that more later this week on the show, but I just, I look at the way this team's constructed. You mentioned it. They just, they are not built to win games by double digits. It doesn't appear. And they've had games they could have, and they found ways to make it interesting. And it's almost like they do it on purpose. So I would anticipate that's exactly what we're going to be heading towards, but the Seahawks have to be hoping that with Diggs back there, maybe that turns a touchdown into a field goal, and that's something they've done a lot with him in the lineup. They've limited teams' ability to get into the end zone compared to the games that he wasn't in the lineup. And like you said, in close games, that's the difference between winning and losing. Could be the difference against the Packers on Sunday. Coming up next in the second quarter, it's Throwback Tuesday. We're switching up the segment a bit this week. We're going to be looking back at some previous matchups in Seahawks-Packers history at Lambeau Field. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. 
Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Nick Lee. We're going to put a bow on Seattle's wild card win in the third quarter with some defensive takeaways from Philadelphia. Up next, it's time for Throwback Tuesday. As part of this segment, we go back in time to dish out a bit of a history lesson for Seahawks fans. This week, given the opponent, the out-of-division rivalry, Nick, it's only fitting we look back at some classic games between the Seahawks and Packers at Lambeau Field, and there certainly have been some in recent history. Yeah, and it's a lot of them did not go, most of them did not go the Seahawks way. First one we're going to look back on, sorry, 12s. It's uh, it's too bad the way it ended the way it did because 2003 wildcard game was a fantastic game. It was a seesaw affair. In fact, I found myself with some time last night to myself and I rewatched, you know, like 15, 20 minute highlights of That's the 03. Move. It was, and you know, because as I'm, an, I'm a, I'm a self admitted 12, a true 12 in the fact that I married a Seahawks girl in 2013. I, I, I lived, I moved up here in 2014, and I really became interested in Seattle sports around 2012. And so I'm a true 12, and so I'm still kind of learning the history a little bit. I mean, I've been a football fan my whole life, and I know, I know about this game. I kind of watched it as a neutral fan at the time. Um, so yes, I, I wanted to freshen myself up and, and watch it now as a Seahawks fan and how I would have felt. Um, of course it was all about the field goals early and Brett Favre touched down to Bubba Franks, put the Packers up 10 to six. They added a late field goal, um, to go to, uh, to go up to the break up at the break at by seven. And of course, Sean Alexander, cause you can't mention mid 2000 Seahawks football without Sean Alexander was bottled up with only 45 rushing yards on 20 carries, but he did score two one-yard touchdowns in the third quarter to give the Seahawks a 20-13 to lead. So here the Seahawks are, up by seven in the second half on Green Bay in Lambeau Field, and it's getting cold. It's not snowing, but it's pretty darn frigid. And the Packers do respond with two short touchdown runs by Amon Green to recapture the lead. And Alexander answers with a, a one-yard touchdown run of his own. And then the Packers are driving down seemingly to just it seemed inevitable that they'd win the game on the field goal. As time expires, it fell short. And then it was time for overtime, and of course, Corbin, in this game, it was twenty. I think it was twenty-seven, twenty-seven, on the overtime coin toss. We all know what happened. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, you mentioned this was such a good game up to this point. It was going to overtime, twenty-seven, twenty-seven. I called this the one-yard bowl, and a lot of people probably are wondering where I came up with that name, but it's because there were five touchdown runs in this game between Sean Alexander and Amon Green that were all one-yard touchdowns. You just don't see that in one game. That many where they were at the goal line that many times and running backs found their way into the end zone. So it was kind of an old school battle. Both quarterbacks didn't have a ton of yardage throwing through the air. It was in the low 20s temperature wise. So it was suitable for running the ball and physical defense. And then we get to overtime, the coin toss. Matt Hasselbeck infamously goes, we want the ball and we're going to score. And anybody that has seen this game, this was something that as a young man, I mean, I when this happened, I was 14 years old. And I'm telling you, this game haunted me for years. And I, I had to wait until, even when they got to the Super Bowl a couple years later, they lost that game. And a lot of people say, well, wouldn't you be more upset about losing the Super Bowl? No, I'm still more upset about what Matt Hasselbeck said. And then turning around and throwing a 52-yard pick six to end the game 33-27, Al Harris picks it off, takes it back to the house. The throw was intended for Alex Bannister, and 
Harris just jumped it. He had it read the entire time, and uh, unfortunately, Hasselbeck, even to this day, still gets jeers about that, and it was something for, for years Seahawks fans had to deal with from other fan bases, remembering that that infamous line from him, and the Seahawks ended up falling just short in that game. But let's go to another one that happened in 2008. I don't know that we should call this one a classic because it did turn into a blowout, but I remember watching this game on TV as well, and it felt like early the Seahawks were going to come in and pull this huge upset. They come out red hot. They forced two fumbles on running back Ryan Grant on the first two drives of the game. And the Seahawks end up scoring both times. First one leads to a Sean Alexander touchdown run. The second time, Matt Hasselbeck hits Bobby Ingram for an 11-yard score. It's 14-0 with 11.06 to go in the first quarter. But... Then the snow started coming down. It makes it fitting because the Packers from there, everything just snowballed on the Seahawks. And the Packers, they scored touchdowns on their next six, I repeat, six offensive drives to end up blowing this game wide open. I I truly think that the snow gives the Packers superpowers. And every every home field that has a true home field advantage has that it factor. In Seattle, of course, it's the noise. It's the raising of the 12th flag. And the 12s are great like that. In Lambeau, it's the it's the cold, it's the snow. It really does empower that that team, I think. And I mean, with Seattle, I mean they they they've played in some inclement weather. But if you're facing a team like you know the Arizona Cardinals or or an NFC team that's that's from a warm setting, I mean that's pretty intimidating and pretty pretty jarring to the system. So they, I think they welcome that, and it certainly was that in this game. Yeah, because Favre just was marching him up and down the field. Um, and they, they eventually got to 42 points. It, it was it was the halftime at 28-17, a 28-3 run by the Packers. The Seahawks would only score six points in the next three quarters after that those two quick first-quarter touchdowns. And it was a 42-20 to blowout loss. Grant went for 203 and three touchdowns on the ground, which is a friend was a franchise record. I guess I'm, I'm not up-to-date on Packers lore right now. I'm, I'm sure it's still a Packers record. Brett Favre threw for three touchdowns. All six of those touchdowns came on consecutive drives, like you mentioned. And really, it did snowball. It snowballed completely out of control um, after the snow started falling. And really, the Seahawks had chances late, but the snow was blinding. I mean, the snowflakes were huge. I mean, this was a snowball. You mentioned that they get superpowers from the snow. That's really what happened in this game because before the snow really got going, the Seahawks were dominating early. And then the snow started coming down, and then suddenly the Packers couldn't do anything wrong. They they get two touchdowns in a row, and then tight end Marcus Pollard fumbles. And that, that was, to me, one of the biggest plays of the game because the Seahawks, you could already tell, they were starting to get deflated by the fact we raced out to this big lead, and now it's tied again real quick because now we can't get stops. And then Pollard fumbles. It's like, oh, no, here we go again. You could just see that the Seahawks, after that play, the body language from their players, and then the snow just kept picking up. And when the snow picks up, Brett Favre starts making crazy plays. And really the play I remember from this game more than any of them, there was a play that Brett Favre was scrambling to his right, and it looked like he was going to get sacked. He was stumbling and bumbling. It looked like he was just going to fall over in the snow. And he ends up somehow unloading a shovel pass, and I believe it was Bubba Franks that was on the receiving end of it. Yeah. And he shoveled it off to him and completed it for a first. It was a backbreaker because if he would have been stopped there, the Packers would have had to try to kick a long field goal in the snow 
or, you know, it, it would have at least kept the game within reach. Instead, the Packers end up just going down and scoring a touchdown after that magnificent play, shoveling the ball off. You know how Brett Favre was. He was the original improviser at the quarterback position, and that was one play in his career that always stands out to me, not just because it happened against the Seahawks, but it really it really magnified the kind of playmaker that he was. And once that happened, it's like, there's no way the Seahawks are getting back in this game. The Packers have all the momentum, and they ended up just blowing out the Seahawks. You take away those two touchdowns early, it was 42-6, to the rest of the game it was an absolute beatdown. oof yeah and, and re-watching it last night that, that was actually the first time I'd watched it as a Seahawks fan and I could just feel for I could just picture myself in 2008 and I was going almost going on 17 there and that would have just been completely deflating for me because um, watching it as a neutral fan it's, I have an interesting perspective here because at the time I was living in San Diego and I was a diehard Chargers fan raised by an Eagles father so I didn't really have an emotional tie to the Seahawks and that the play you mentioned is the one that still sticks out to me someone ca- called to memory this game the other day and I'm like oh yeah is that that game where Brett Favre was like through a no look pass while stumbling to uh, onto the onto the ground like that that still sticks out to me as a neutral fan watching that game so I'm sure that's league-wide that that that's one of the more iconic Brett Favre that was just a classic Brett Favre moment but let's go to a happier game to discuss Corbin yes let's let's, 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 get, let's, let's flush those the treehouse of horrors is over well let's let's go to 1999 week eight the last time which is the last time the Seahawks won in Green Bay Corbin over 7,300 days ago wow wow I mean that that's we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're talking over 20 years ago, Mike Holmgren homecoming game. I mean, the storylines were there. Seahawks are 4-2, and two, Packers 4-2. and two. Yeah, this was, a, this was a remarkable game, actually, between two teams that early in the 1999 season, I mean, the Seahawks were getting some buzz as one of the better teams in the AFC, which if you've watched the Seahawks in the 90s or read anything or listened to our show, they stunk almost the entire 90s. They're so so. bad. So this was this was the end of the decade. You bring in Mike Holmgren. You gave him an eight-year contract that he just could not refuse. So he left Green Bay, comes to Seattle, and just happens to have a game at Lambeau Field in Week 8 against his former team. You've got him and Brett Favre embracing each other. I wrote an article about this on Seahawk Maven. You may want to check it out. I broke this game down because this was one of my favorite games you know, growing up that really uh, the Seahawks were so bad for most of my childhood. But uh, this particular game, like you said, the storylines were there. It was Monday Night Football 2, emerging teams from uh, opposite conferences because remember the Seahawks were in the AFC still at that point. So there was even some light buzz out there, like maybe these could be Super Bowl contenders. I didn't think there was any way because John Kitna was the quarterback for the Seahawks, but they were 4-2. and two. They were playing really well. Sean Springs has the game of his life. 61-yard touchdown return after Lamar King blocks a Ryan Longwell field goal. It's 7-0 Seahawks. Then uh, after that, he gets two interceptions against Brett Favre. They picked Favre off four times in this game. I think this might have been the worst game of Brett Favre's career. 14 for 35, 180 yards, five total turnovers, four picks, and he also had a fumble that was forced by Hall of Famer Cortez Kennedy, one of his last vintage games, three sacks on Brett Favre. So for Seahawks fans that had, had to deal with such a you know such an ugly decade, to see this team come out and put down a beatdown and win 27-7 to at Lambeau Field, that's a big deal. 
Yeah, that's one of those signature wins, especially as a fan of, of a of a bad team in the '90s. That that just sticks out to you in your memory. And I mean, whenever you go in, into Lambeau Field and beat the Packers, regardless of the either team standing, it's memorable. And isn't that classic Brett Favre though? He got 14 for 35, 180 fumble, four picks. He probably went out the next game and threw for 400 yards and five touchdowns because that's just what Brett Favre did. Um, John Kitno, of course, the, the game manager, two touchdowns, 109 yards, wasn't asked to do a ton. Just a, he was he was the classic. Just looking at watching some games and looking at some stats, the classic "don't screw it up" quarterback, where he he's, he can manage a game just fine. He won't take over a game, but he can also not screw it up, which is what you want. Ricky Waters, of course, bad dude, 125 yards rushing. Yeah, Cortez Kennedy, that was kind of like the the cherry on top of his career. That's like thanks for enduring all this crap in the 90s. And here here's this one last big game on Monday Night Football against the Packers three sacks on a Hall of Fame quarterback. Like, that was just the pinnacle of his career and, and really a treat for Seahawks fans to see that. And, and I'm hoping that we can summon the, the, the nasty nastiness of Cortez Kennedy and the, and the Ricky Waters running around everywhere because we're going to need those two aspects to really show up on Sunday. To be the Packers, yeah, they're going to need to somehow, uh, they're going to have to make what happened in this particular game in 1999 happen. I mean, maybe that means you need to put John Kitten in, you know, we don't want John Kitten in uniform. But, oh, please no. <laughs> but you get my drift, though. You got to create some turnovers. Sean Springs certainly did that. The Seahawks had a lot of fun against Brett Favre in that particular game. And they actually won their next three games after this. The Seahawks were 8-2. and two. And they were sitting atop the AFC. They had a chance to get a first round bye. And then the wheels fell off. They ended up finishing 9-7. and seven, Still won the AFC West. Then lost to the Miami Dolphins. A three-point loss to Dan Marino and company in the wild card round. And they didn't make the postseason the next season. So it was, it was really fun while it lasted. We know the Seahawks figured things out under Mike Holmgren. This was really his first defining win in his first season with the Seahawks. And... They haven't won at Lambeau ever since. It's been 20 years, so maybe this fourth try for Russell Wilson will be the one that he can finally get over the hump and win at Lambeau, and it'd be nice for that to be the one they choose to win. The other three weren't playoff games. Get your victory at Lambeau in the playoffs. We'll just have to wait and see. When we come back from the break, we're going to be looking at the Seahawks on defense from Sunday. Plenty of takeaways, including Jadevian Clowney. I'm sure we'll be talking about a particular hit for a few minutes here in this next segment. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us on Locked On Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with my sidekick, Nick Lee. Yesterday, I had a chance to break down some offensive takeaways from Sunday's wildcard victory in Philadelphia. Nick, you and I now are going to swing to the defensive side of the football. The Seahawks, again, holding the Eagles. Obviously, tons of injuries for Philadelphia, a team that's way, way away from being full strength. They also lost Carson Wentz in this game. But they held him to nine points, same score as the last time, a very solid defensive outing. What's the first big takeaway that you can take away from this game, the Seahawks getting the victory and moving on to the divisional round in Green Bay? It was definitely the pass rush coming to life. I mean, we've been we've been pounding our fists all season long about how we need to see the pass rush, and Pete Carroll's like, hold on, we're building towards it. And I think this is what he was meaning. A game like this, obviously this is more feasting on, yeah, a beat-up Eagles team. I I will be blown out of my chair if they have seven sacks against Rodgers and the Packers. The Seahawks win that game if they have seven sacks against Aaron Rodgers, straight up. Um, I, I was pretty shocked in the fourth quarter. I looked, and they had six at the time. It was... 
I, I forget what sack it was, but he's like, and that's their sixth sack. Like, oh, what, what? It just didn't oh. compute. <laughs> no, it didn't. Because we're not used to it. And, of course, starting with Jadavion Clowney. I mean, I know we're, that first that he, he's, he was everywhere in this game, including on top of Carson Wentz. <laughs> um, first of all, I, I, I don't I don't think I went as far as calling it dirty on Twitter. I, I I had some I was pretty critical of the hit itself. Of course, it looks at worse in slow motion. Of course, anything like that will look look worse in slow motion. And I I didn't like the whole lowering of the head against the head thing. I I think that can be avoided. I know he's going full speed, and I know Carson Wentz was diving, so it's really really tough. I'm not going to go ahead and say that Jadavion Clowney was trying to hurt Carson Wentz. Of course not. And Clowney was even saying, you know, I've been down the injury road. I would never want to send a guy that way. And I have a lot of respect for Jadavion Clowney like that. But I don't think it was the best decision for Clowney to do that. And I really couldn't defend it. I, like I said, my dad's an Eagles fan. I was, I had a little bit of a pulse on Eagles Twitter. I have a couple of Eagles friends. And they were, wow. My, I don't think I've ever seen my dad that mad during a game in a long time. He was so mad. And I, I get it. I get Like, imagine if the, you know, Brandon Graham lands awkwardly on Russell Wilson and all of a sudden Geno Smith is trying to win the Seahawks playoff game. I'd be pretty pissed. Yeah, I understand the vitriol. Um, that, and I understand why Eagles fans responded how they did. But uh, you and I are on a little different spectrum with this play because not only do, did I not think that it was dirty, I, w- I would have been fine with them calling a penalty on it because the way that it ended up happening. But I've played defensive end. and Obviously, I didn't do it at the NFL. But I've rushed passers, and I know what it's like to be trying to track down a quarterback who becomes a runner like that. It's extremely difficult. Clowney was coming off of his feet already when Wentz wasn't on the ground. That's the thing that people have to understand. He was trying in pursuit to catch up with Wentz, and he lowered his shoulder, and it was going into his back initially. And people had issues with that, but it's like, okay, he can't stop himself in midair. So that's where my issue with it comes into play. I would have completely understood if they called a 15-yard penalty on him. And I think the fans, if they, would have, if they would have thrown a flag there, I think the fans would have been maybe a little less upset. Obviously, Wentz would have still been out of the game, so we know how Philadelphia fans are. Uh, they would have been roasting, booing, you name it, clowny the entire rest of the game. And there is some history there. He knocked Nick Foles out of a game last year when he was with the Texans. So... Uh, that play was a little more dirty than this one was. Uh, getting his hand latched onto the uh, ear hole. Yeah, he got his, yeah. Got his hand uh, caught on it, and um, unfortunately, Nick Foles ended up leaving the game. So there was already some history there, but I didn't think it was dirty. I didn't think it was malicious. I didn't think there was ill intent there at all, and I think Clowney handled it about the best you can. He just kept playing football, and that's what you got to do. And from the sounds of it, maybe he'll get fined, but I doubt if anything's going to happen because because the league even said after reviewing it that they're looking at it, the refs after the game said we just didn't think there was anything malicious. We didn't think that it warranted a penalty. So, like I said, it could have been called one, but don't think it's a big deal. Let's get back to how Clowney played, though, away from that, because I think that's overshadowed how well Clowney played in this football game. I asked Pete Carroll about it after the game in his press conference. I said he had a little bit more of a spring in his step. It was very obvious how disruptive he was. There were a couple plays he missed in the backfield, but it ended up setting up tackle opportunities for teammates. He had a sack, a couple tackles for loss. He was all over the place. And it was the first time since that 49ers game back in week 10, Nick, that I really thought Jadevian Clowney looked like his typical disruptive self. Yeah, in fact, all the stats I'm looking at, like yards per play and and sacks and quarterback hits, 
it, it, it's it went from this game to the 49ers Monday night win against the Niners. That, that I mean that's that those are the two games that really where the defense has played as about as complete a game as you can as you can play. And and I understand this game was against uh, 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 it was Wentz and the practice boys, and then eventually McCown and the practice boys. But uh, it it doesn't take away from the fact that you kept him out of the end zone. I mean, that's a big deal in an NFL game. Quentin Jefferson with two sacks. Cody Barton gets his first. McDougald, like we mentioned, was everywhere. You know, and and, and Green and, and, and K.J. Wright, and also with one apiece. Rasheem Green, the Seahawks season sacks leader this year, <laughs> with four. Nine quarterback hits, 11 tackles for loss. I mean, the defense was everywhere. Clowney was spearheading it. Clowney could have had eight tackles, three sacks, and four tackles for loss in this game with just a, a hair here or a half a second here. He was everywhere, and it was so good to see because, like I keep saying, we are absolutely going to need the Monday night football against the 49ers, the Sunday against the Eagles version of Jadavion Clowney to beat the Packers. He absolutely is going to have to play like he did the other night and maybe better. He's going to have to finish some of those plays. And I think he would tell you after the game, I definitely left some out there where he was in position to make tackles for loss, get sacks. And they had a bunch of opportunities that they missed out on. Like Pete Carroll said, uh, Jaron Reed had one that he had McCown completely lined up. I'm going to give McCown a ton of credit because the situation he was put in with Wentz getting hurt, getting thrown in, 40-year-old quarterback making his playoff debut. I mean, it just there were all off. kinds of crazy things going on. And, and he did the best that he could. He led some pretty successful drives for the Eagles with all the injuries they have around him and kept the game close late. So I'm going to give McCown a lot of credit there. A name that I want to highlight from a positive standpoint, we've talked about him a lot the last several weeks. K.J. Wright, I believe, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, and now even more so after watching this playoff game. I believe he is playing as good a football right now as he has played at any point in his career. He's all over the place. He's blowing up screens. He had a play that he chased down McCown going towards the sideline in the red zone that ended up stuffing him. Looked like it was kind of a vicious hit, but it was clean. Uh, Eagles fans are begging at that point. Yeah, they were, but that hit was perfectly clean. Uh, It was just a really nice play by K.J. Wright. And he was just flying all over the place. I think right now, again, he is playing as well as he has at any point. And that's a big deal for the Seahawks, especially coming back from the injuries. A lot of questions. Is he going to be a a good linebacker anymore? He hasn't just been good. He's been great the last few weeks. He he destroyed George Kittle on a screen in that regular season finale against the 49ers. There was another screen he blew up. He's just playing great football. Maybe he's lost a step or two, but his instincts have allowed him to remain a very solid and NFL linebacker keeping him in Seattle I think is turning into one of the more important offseason moves of of this season and, and that would include the clowny trade that would include getting digs I think bringing back KJ Wright and making sure he remains a Seahawk was just as important I went back at the playoff games because that because he he was hurt most of last year but we remember finally he's healthy and 100 for the for the playoff game against the Cowboys and even though the Seahawks lost that game. We both remember how well K.J. Wright played in that game. And he just seems to be showing up more in playoff games. Of course, he's a Pro Bowl linebacker in the regular season, but he seems to have that extra juice in the playoffs. And I wanted to see just how much. And and since Super Bowl Forty Eight, so since the win against the, the Broncos, he's played in 10 playoff games. He has 80 tackles, one and a half sacks, and an interception. 80 ta- so that's, that's eight tackles per playoff game. 
um, in, in the 10 games since that Super Bowl win, including the Super Bowl win. So he, he seems to be showing up when it matters most. He seems to be getting better as the season goes along. And he's no spring chicken either, so that's really impressive that he's playing this way. And really, with him and K.J. Wright, I mean, they, they've almost been equal the last few weeks. Yeah, I think you meant him and Bobby Wagner. <laughs> or sorry, him and Bobby. Him yeah, and Bobby but, Wagner. Wait, are, you know, it'd be nice if there were two KJs out there to go with Bobby <laughs> Wagner. But but that leads to my next point here. When you have KJ Wright and Bobby Wagner both playing the way they are, you can't possibly have a better example for a rookie like Cody Barton that now is going to be in the starting lineup with Michael Kendricks out with a torn ACL. Cody Barton with some really nice plays in this game in coverage. The Eagles rely on their running backs a lot to catch the football with the injuries they've had at receiver. Boston Scott and Miles Sanders had 41 catches combined in their last four games, and I thought he did an outstanding job in coverage against those two. Made a couple nice plays in the run game, had a sack as well. So we're seeing the youngster grow up. He made some mistakes with his run fits. That would be my biggest complaint. Again, Having K.J. Wright and Bobby Wagner out there playing the way they are, set an example, the leadership out there. Players like Cody Barton, he's a sponge. He's going he's gonna to learn from what those guys are doing while he's on the field, and we're seeing the improvements. And again, that's a big deal. When you have those three out there, Barton's playing well to go with it. With his skill set being a, more of an athletic cover guy, that's a, that's a really big deal for the Seahawks. So uh, they have to be excited what, about what K.J. Wright's doing as well as Cody Barton coming out of this football game, getting ready to play a much better offensive team, a much healthier offensive team in the Green Bay Packers. Going into some things that uh, left something to be desired, let's say, let's say on defense, because really they gave up nine points. They didn't allow the Eagles in the end zone. Really, were compl- it's like complaining about the mole on the supermodel at this point. I mean, it's all fine. It's sexy. It's no, no, it's fine. <laughs> they didn't allow a touchdown. Um, but there are some concerns, certainly, that some run fits on some plays. The, a few linebackers, that, like you mentioned, Cody Barton, got sucked into the wrong gap and, and left some things open, and Miles Sanders was able to wiggle loose a little bit. And that's going to be concerning because I think that the Aaron Jones for the Packers is turning into one of the more dynamic running backs in the NFL. Maybe not the true best pure running back, but certainly one that can hurt you in either facet of running or, or catching out of the backfield. And so they're going to have to tighten those uh, those run gaps against a, a player like Aaron Jones, and especially with how much better the offensive line will be for Green Bay than it was in Philadelphia. Yeah, I think the run fits certainly are a big issue, as I mentioned. And, and Trey Flowers, the two defensive pass interference penalties he had in the second half, he was in position on both of them. Just turn around and make a play on the football. Instead, he panicked and ended up grabbing on the receiver. And one of them led to a field goal. The other one, the Seahawks were able to get a fourth down stop. That was clowning. Turn side. around. Yeah, just turn around and play the football. Yeah, and he wasn't able to do that. You could tell how, you know, Pete Carroll, he doesn't get upset necessarily, but you could tell how agitated he was after the game when when Trey Flowers was brought up with those couple plays. You could just tell, like, come on, Trey. You've been in the league now long enough doing this. you got to know you got to turn to play the football there. And both those plays should have been incomplete passes at worst. I mean, he had opportunities to get an interception on both of them. And he just, he broke the rules. He got grabby and you just can't do that. You're going to get caught every single time. And I think this is also worth pointing out. No turnovers of the conventional variety. Once again, they did get those couple fourth down stops in the second half, which I consider turnovers. They got them off the field, got the football back to their offense and gave up no points, but no interceptions, no fumble recoveries. So even with Quandre Diggs back out there, the defense played a lot better as we mentioned the first quarter, but 
they still weren't able to create any turnovers, and that's against a team that had a backup quarterback in, a bunch of backup receivers, a banged-up offensive line. They played well, but they are going to have to. I'm saying this right now, Nick. They are going to have to create at least one or two turnovers against the Packers to have a chance to win that football game at Lambeau Field. They, they can't go out there and have a, an offer and win this game. No, absolutely not. I, I completely agree with you. In fact, I'm going to go a little bit farther. If the Seahawks are not at least plus two in the turnover margin, they lose this game. I, I guarantee you they will lose this game if they do not get at least, or if they are not plus two, whether that's they turn one over and get three or zero and two, however it happens. They have to get to Aaron Rodgers. They, they have to have that same pass rush. Jadavion Clowney has to be at that same level, if not higher, like you mentioned, and we have to get some turnovers. I think Quandre Diggs does make a difference, and I think his second game back and the the safety combo we talked about in the first quarter that they're going to find a bit more cohesiveness. I think that they will, they can and will create some turnovers. I don't think this Packers team is impenetrable. I don't think that they're infallible. I think that they're one of the more flawed thirteen and three teams. We just saw the Saints lose, so we just saw the Saints lose in the Superdome. So I think with that, anything is possible. These two teams have matched up very well in the past. And really, yeah, if, if you want to you want to flip the Lambeau Field thing the other way and, and, and eliminate that as, as a factor, you, you get some turnovers. Aaron Rodgers is a tough guy to intercept. He only threw four picks this year. Most of his career been really difficult to intercept him. Just doesn't force a lot of throws. The Seahawks did pick him off in their matchup in 2018. So maybe they can get an interception or two against him. The pressure is going to be key, as you mentioned. And I don't know if I'll go as far as saying plus two, but it will dramatically impact their chances of winning this game if they get plus two or better in the turnover margin. They can force a fumble. They can get Aaron Rodgers to make an uncharacteristic bad decision and get intercepted or a pass gets deflected and they're able to pick it off. They have to find a way to get some quick changes in this football game to be able to beat the Packers. We're going to be breaking that down more later in the week when we dive deeper into this upcoming divisional round matchup. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. You can follow Nick at NickLee51. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on the Locked on Seahawks podcast, you can contact me, LockedSeahawks at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is, by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up tomorrow, it's a playoff edition of Crossover Wednesday. I'll be joining the Locked On Packers crew to break down this upcoming matchup at Lambeau Field. Hope you'll be listening in. Go Hawks!